Good evening. I'm Dove Tuzman. You're on equal footing. And tonight we're going to be talking about the rescuer. We talk a lot during, during this period of the pandemic. We've been talking a lot about those who have been suffering. And of course, we've been celebrating the first responders, and the doctors, and the healers who have been working to support our health infrastructure all around the world and keep people safe. There's a broader topic there, though, about the psychological toll that's taken on those who are caregivers. And what we're going to do in this multi-part series, at least a couple parts, is talk about the different perspectives of people that are trying to kind of save others spiritually, in terms of psychotherapy, medically, legally, the professions of caregiving and the effect that failures, so to speak, in caregiving when people fall off the wagon, when people cannot recover from disease, when people are incarcerated in the case of like a defense lawyer, when people go through unsolvable crises of faith in the case of people in the clergy and those quote unquote failures to save how they affect the caregivers, how they affect the people that are trying to do the rescuing. And that's why we've we've called this series Rescuing the Rescuer. Consider the title of The Wounded Healer, and we'll get to that. That's a motif in our society, from Jesus Christ to Dr. House on TV, <laughs> The Wounded Healer. But that implies that all healers are wounded, and that's not true, but we all need rescuing at times, including those that are doing the rescuing. So to participate in this discussion, this is, we're on live radio, as always. You can dial 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. And you can also send a text if you want to, to participate anonymously, 917 917- 428-4062. That's 917-428-4062. It's a number to send a text or WhatsApp. Joined this evening by uh, two wonderful guests who have been on the show before in very different contexts. I'm going to introduce, starting with you, Dr. Ackerman. Dr. Debbie Ackerman is a licensed clinical social worker with many years of experience specializing in addiction and recovery, trauma, marriage and family work. Dr. Ackerman has also had many personal experiences with addiction and bereavement. She's worked for over 10 years specifically in the field of addiction in both clinical and administrative realms. And Dr. Ackerman received her master's in social work from the Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University. Her doctorate in social welfare from Wurzweiler Yeshiva as well. And Dr. Ackerman's dissertation, Build It and They Will Come, focused on the lack of outpatient addiction treatment facilities in the Orthodox Jewish community. Dr. Ackerman has extensive teaching experience uh, covering a wide range of clinical practices. And she's a collector of children, in her own words, (laughs) 11 stepchildren, uh, 8 children uh, of her own also, and is the new mom to her self-described love of her 
of her life, Cinnamon, who's a puppy. Uh, and Dr. Ackerman, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. I really enjoyed having you on last time. We were talking about uh, addiction, and, and now we're going to turn the lens around and talk about the, uh, the caregivers, the therapy, the therapists. So thank you, Debbie. Thank you so much. I love being here, and I really appreciate it. Please call me Debbie. Let me just uh, let me just set the record straight. It's eleven of my own children, eight stepchildren. Oh, sorry. One cat, one, no problem. The one fat, wonderful cat who's about a hundred years old, and the new love of my life, Cinnamon. So, <laughs> and my husband. Let's not forget him. At least you got the totals right. <laughs> <laughs> I do a daily count. It keeps me sharp. Yeah. Thank you very much. This is an honor. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on again, and I want to introduce a uh, our other guest tonight, who's been a wonderful guest in the past, talking about subjects as difficult as uh, cults and the concept of when you need to break up with your spiritual mentor, your rabbi, your priest, it's not that relationship's not working for you anymore. The Reverend Dr. David Taylor, uh, always totally authentic in his commentary and, uh, and, and lighthearted even in the most difficult of realms. Let me introduce the Reverend Doctor for a second because he's become a friend over this uh, last year of broadcasting and it's really a, a, a fantastic individual. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Taylor is a chaplain at the St. Andrews School in Florida. It's a very prestigious private school. He's been there for 22 years. He's a native of Vero Beach, Florida, and he grew up in a Southern Baptist evangelical home. After graduating from the University of Mississippi, uh, the Reverend Dr. earned his Master's of Divinity from the Southern Theological Seminary. He also earned a Master of Religious Studies from the University of Cape Town on a Rotary Foundation scholarship. And during his time in South Africa, he worked with the Nobel Prize Peace Prize winner, the Bishop Desmond Tutu. So the Reverend Dr. Taylor brings perspectives in different areas of the Christian uh, faith. He's also been he's been specifically a member of the Episcopal Church in the uh, since the 1990s, and he earned his doctorate from the Virginia Episcopal Episcopalian Seminary. And the Reverend Doctor served as a chaplain to major and minor league baseball teams, which I've always wanted to talk to on the air. Uh, Reverend Dave, never had a chance to do that. I'm a huge baseball fan. You've also served as a chaplain to veterans, hospitals, retirement communities, prisons, as well as numerous other boarding schools. So, Reverend Taylor, wonderful to have you back on. Thank you so much, Joe. It's fantastic to be here. So in the past, you guys have both been on the show talking about, in a certain sense, sorry to use maybe a, a little bit of a hackneyed uh, phrase or way of looking at it, but your clients, your patients, the people that you minister to, in the case of yourself, Reverend Dave, and and uh, and Debbie, in the ca- in your case, your, your patients and your therapeutic practice. And as I said at the outset of the show, our, our topic tonight is to really turn the lens around and focus on the psychological process and toll that's taken on those who are giving the care, who are ministering, who are uh, trying to, to, to help in the healing journey. So let's first set the stage by talking a little bit about what you actually do. And maybe, uh, Dr. Ackerman, Debbie, you could, you could start us off with the concept of, like, what is it that you actually do in your daily practice, and where do you feel the psychological toll the, the most? Okay. Um, that's a great question. What do I do in my daily practice? Okay, don't follow me around. Um, really, basically, social work particularly uh, comes down to a very basic phrase, which is you start from where the client is. So I always tell the client, it's really not my goal. 
that we're looking to work towards, it's yours. Uh, in the values and ethics class that I teach at Wurzweiler, we emphasize this every single day. Social work has ethical dilemmas every hour of every day that you're going to be in practice. Um, the 14-year-old that comes to you and, and wants an abortion, you're staunchly pro-life. Um, the man that comes to you and tells you he's been uh, unfaithful to his wife for the past 30 years, you can't say anything because you're bound by issues of confidentiality. Mm-hmm. So there are so many cases every single day that present us with ethical dilemmas and also places where you have to completely put yourself aside, your needs, your wants, your desires, and focus or minister or treat only the client that's sitting in front of you. And that sounds easier than it is, because as we, as we learn from day one in social work school, you're a person, and you come to this with your own thoughts, with your own feelings, with your own value system, with your own judgments, with your own morals. And so we have to really learn from a very basic day one approach. That can't be the focus. So, that, for example, I deal with people that have addiction, and they always tell me, well, if I, I still use, how are you going to treat me? 100%. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, you're not going to get clean for me. You want to get clean? We can talk about getting sober. You don't want to get clean? We'll talk about whatever it is you want to get clean. And from the outset, that usually relaxes people a little bit. What happens, what happens when you when you need help? What happens when you need to get clean, so to speak, whether it's from addiction or from the the, the trauma of your work? Where do, you, where do you go? So that's a great question. We we always teach our students and we teach ourselves when, when you start to get irritated with your clients, right, when you start to see your judgments creeping in, when you start to have what we call that counter-transferential reaction and you're getting angry with them or their choices, you never look at them, you look at yourself. What's going on with you? Did I have a fight with my husband? Are my kids driving me crazy? Am I feeling, you know, financial stress or pressure? What What's going on in my life that's mm-hmm. not able to let me be completely objective and therapeutic in the room. And so there really are a lot of disciplines and organizations that really encourage therapists to have weekly therapy. Mm -hmm. And as one person who I very much uh, like and admire said, how can you delve into somebody's interpsychic process weekly when you're not delving into your own? And I really hold from that. And I think that all good therapists have a therapist or a mentor or somebody, and we do supervision. Things get difficult. We have weekly supervision. We meet with the team. We meet with our, our colleagues, with our mentors, and we talk about it. We deal with very heavy life and death situations. Very few of us are dealing with what we call the worried well, mm-hmm. uh, especially now in light of the pandemic. Even the best cases, people's businesses have gone under. They're facing eviction. They know people who have passed away. Things get very intense very quickly. You know, and so we have yeah. Sorry for the interruption. You know, as I'm as I'm hearing you you talk about the therapist seeing therapists, I think about the concept of tabula rasa, which in Latin literally means like a scraped uh, tablet, but we use it to refer to like a blank slate, particularly in the mind or the soul, and it kind of ties the two of you together as a therapist and a and a person of the clergy, Reverend Dave, because in both areas there's. An ex- there has been historically like an expectation of tabula rasa, an expectation that the therapist in, the, in Freudian psychoanalytics is like a blank slate and not transfer any of their identity onto the person receiving the therapy. And even St. Thomas Aquinas on the, 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 uh, on, on the, the kind of Christian theology side 
also has talks about like the, the blank slate of the soul and the fact that everyone can be formed and the one is ministering needs to do the forming as opposed to kind of project their own in that case you know perhaps sins or their own issues how do you how do you deal with this impossible i would almost call it a mythology or like this impossible goal that as a caregiver you be tabula rasa you be a blank slate not take on the pain not have your own uh, horrible ideations not have your own demons reverend dave does this resonate with you how, how, what what do you do in your work and how do you how do you deal with this almost impossible requirement to to always be kind of on your A game at the very least, if not be a completely, you know, beautiful blank slate for the people that you're ministering to. Um, I really appreciate what uh, Debbie said about the idea of, you know, being, first of all, uh, being able to consult people when you need help. And in certain forms of chaplaincy, like in hospital chaplaincy and CPE, clinical pastoral education, there is a structure that is built in so that you have the the weekly check-ins. In the local church, many times that is, is not there. And so the idea of the tabula rasa, uh, in my counseling uh, background, it was like you know being a non-anxious presence mm-hmm. for the person. Mm-hmm. And that is like... It, if you're human, you have to work on that. It's like a Buddhist concept of taming the monkey mind. You have to be there for the person. And I find that many times incredibly difficult. Uh, I just, since our last conversation 24 hours ago, these are the things that I've dealt with this week. Um, a, a member of the school having a, a miscarriage, anxiety about retirement, uh, a colleague with cancer, uh, imprisonment, legal issues, COVID rehab, parental illness and death, contracts, looking for a new job, anxiety of retirement, child in an eating disorder treatment center, and suicidal ideation of others. And that's in the um, last week. That's this week. Um, and, of course, there's, you know, like none we of them know about together. each other. And, well, and those I are, it sounds uh, like we were working together. <laughs> Exactly, Debbie, exactly. Um, And I I think one of the things that is very interesting uh, for me is that there has to be a solid strength of relationship um, with others. And one of the things that I've pulled up uh, in terms of references, 70% of people that are pastors don't feel like they have a close friend. And 80% of them feel that their job has had a negative impact upon their family and their personal life. And so it's, uh, it's a really... If, if it's a job that you don't feel called into, uh, or even if it's a job you do feel called into, there's going to be tremendous emotional stresses as you continue to go on your path. Well, Reverend Dave and, 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 and Dr. Ackerman, let's actually broaden the lens a little bit because here you are professional uh, caregivers. I hope you don't mind me putting it that way. You've each been drawn to careers in which you are ministering to others. You're helping others. But there's a broader issue here that touches almost everybody uh, listening. People at some at, at a given point in their lives are, are going to be caregivers for a, a sick or dying parent, uh, for a, a child, of course, that's that's going through um, emotional uh, distress or mental illness, um, to even a a, a peer of a, a friend that is um, that's going through existential crisis. So this this topic touches all of us. The the con- that, that can quickly go from helping to codependency. Uh, it can it can get unhealthy pretty quickly. Debbie, do you want to help just anyone who's listening, who's 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 currently in a caregiving role? 
distinguish uh, or give them some tools to distinguish between a healthy caregiving relationship and something that's be- that's become unhealthy or codependent? So one of the things that we have to constantly check uh, is our own boundaries. So if the client is scheduled for, you know, Tuesday at 1 and you have your session on Thursday, you're like, oh, let me just give them a call and see how, you know, that discussion went with their spouse. And on uh, Sunday afternoon, you're like, you know, let me just check up on them and see how, how their weekend was. And it really seems to come from a very good place. I'm a really good practitioner. I care uh, about my clients. But when you start to kind of skew your own boundaries in that way, you have to kind of scale it back and see, who is this about now? Is this about them or if this is about me? We, we set up our business, so to speak, or our helping business from, from the get-go. We have a one-hour session. If we need more, we can move to two hours a week. After that, we look at a higher level of care. I'm available for, you know, crisis situations or crisis counseling because I do a lot of DBT work up to 15 minutes. After that, it's a session. So we have kind of like a contractual informed consent that the client has to agree to. When you start to go beyond that in a very significant way, when you yourself start to obsess over your clients, when you don't have any meaningful self-care for yourself, Mm. right? When you you fundamentally are not dealing with you and you're only dealing with the them, you're going to lose yourself in it. Right, you're not not sleeping, you're not eating, you're not caring for your own needs. You know, in in your practice, Debbie, you obviously have a scheduled pattern, right? You see a client at 3 o'clock, they leave at 3.45, whatever it might be. We were joking in one of our pregame conversations to this show, Debbie, about the fact that, you know, someone like uh, in Reverend Dave's role his his work begins when your work week ends, right? <laughs> like the weekend is probably, I'd imagine, where, where uh, Reverend Taylor, you get more activity. When it's not as easy as Debbie is describing, uh, Reverend Dave, where you've got, where the boundaries aren't as clear and you're caregiving at home or you have a friend who's battling with suicidal ideation who calls you at 2 in the morning, how do you set those boundaries? And do you agree with Debbie that it that it that it's about setting boundaries when it comes to not slipping into codependency? Uh, you have to. You have to have rigid boundaries, and you have to know when when is something uh, important and when is something urgent. Uh, when is something a, 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 something that has to be addressed as opposed to can this wait until the morning? Um, and and I think that that comes through the idea of life and making bad decisions. I mean, you have to have the experience to, to fortify that. I, I think one of the things that I appreciate, uh, again, with what, uh, what Debbie said, is the idea, is, is it about them or is it about us? And I think we need, as caregivers, recognize that we don't have all of our stuff in the same bag all the time. And, in fact, one of the professors that was a mentor at the seminary I went to in Kentucky is the father of pastoral care. He actually came up with the, the word workaholic. Because he was leading a 12-step group, and they finally just looked at him and they said, well, what's your problem, Dr. Wayne Owens? And then he thought about it. He came to us, I'm, I'm addicted to my work. I'm addicted to you. That was where that word came and, from. I've, I've always wondered. I use that word a lot because I am one. Uh, workaholic. And, and with that, the average uh, pastor in the United States works over 60 to 75 hours a week because they feel that they have to. Um, 
but the but Owens with the workaholic concept really points out that you know you have to draw the lines that we're all wounded healers as you set up before the Henry Nowen book, and that we we have to take care of ourselves in order to be of true good service for others when the time is well, right. Well, we're going to Reverend Dr. Taylor, uh, Dr. Ackerman. We're going to take a quick break. I want to repeat our number to participate, and I also want to give you a little bit of food for thought. We just got we've gotten a couple text questions in. Uh, in the first segment, and it also give you food for thought to really open up maybe a little bit more. People are wanting you to open up more in that next segment. To participate in this t- conversation on rescuing the rescuer, the care that we need to give to the caregivers, to the people that are trying to, to help the clergy people, therapists, doctors, lawyers, etc., that are working to help uh, patients or, or clients or uh, parishioners and often Need breaks, need help themselves, need, we need to, uh, uh, recognize that wounded healer dynamic in our society. Participate in this conversation with the Reverend Dr. David Taylor, Dr. Debbie Ackerman, by calling 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. Or you can continue to send texts along to 917-428-4062. Again, for text or WhatsApp messages to 917-428-4062. And, and Dr. Ackerman and, and Reverend Taylor, I'm going to just uh, quickly give you a comment from a listener and then we can think about it over, over the break. This listener says, with respect, they are not answering the question, who takes care of them when they feel weak and human? I know, for example, that many priests become alcoholics because they are so lonely in their attempt to save. So let's think about that, and we'll we'll, uh, get back to your personal stories of who cares for you, what do you do when you feel weak and human. We'll be right back. Thank you. wanted that to, to play longer. I love that song. What a great uh, riff there. All right. Let's talk about a couple of our sponsors because we couldn't do equal footing without our support from our sponsors. First, you've heard me talk about Mechanical Art Capital before. Mechanical Art Capital offers financing to watch collectors and watch dealers from anywhere in the world. So if you know anybody that's got watch inventory, either from a collection or a dealer of watches, they can get cash value from that collection or inventory while they sleep. You know, if you need capital for some other investment, what have you, for operating expenses, you can capitalize that inventory through Mechanical Art Capital's guaranteed buyback contracts. They're very simple, a couple pages long, takes typically 24 to 48 hours at most to get your cash. For more information, you can call 833 833- Two zero nine zero nine seven two. That's eight three three two zero nine zero nine seven two. Operators are standing by. You can also look into it and send in an inquiry at mechanicalartcapital.com. So get onto that program, Easy Cash, for your watch collection or inventory. I also want to talk about Manhattan Medical. Manhattan Medical has a very important message for men and their partners. What's more emotionally painful than erectile dysfunction? And that's being unable to have enjoyable sex. Uh, 
Manhattan Medical utilizes a new gains wave therapy methodology, and it can help you achieve excellent results. There are no expensive blue pills. It's non-invasive, no surgery, and it's painless. With Manhattan Medical, there are no side effects, and for almost all patients, there are wonderful results. I actually heard about Manhattan Medical through a good friend of mine, business and personal life, who's in his 80s, and he wanted to have a healthy sex life again, and he has had terrific results using Manhattan Medical's gains wave therapy. So whatever age you may be, talk about ED. Over 40% of men experience erectile dysfunction at some point in their life, and too few get treatment. Things can get better. Call now for a free consultation. If you mention you heard about it on Equal Footing, you get a free consultation that has real value. Manhattan Medical is on 888-EDQ-R9. That's 888-332-8739. Again, 888-332-8739. Call now and hear about Manhattan Medical's Gains Wave Therapy. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on trying. And I've been taught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on. All right, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tusman. We're on with our wonderful guests, Dr. Debbie Ackerman and the Reverend Dr. Dave Taylor. You guys were challenged with this question before the break. Tonight we're talking about the concept of rescuing the rescuer, the codependency that sometimes happens, the the wounding that sometimes happens for people that are trying to heal, for the caregivers in society, for people in the clergy, for therapists, for doctors, etc. Where do they go for help when they are burnt out from from helping? So I'm going to uh, reread the question from before the break or the comment, question and comment. Uh, who takes care of you when you are feeling weak? Uh, maybe give us a concrete example, um, Reverend Dave. What's been your lowest point in, in that respect, and where did you go for help? Well, uh, I really appreciate the question because I think that many times um, caretakers are really good at deflecting rather than being vulnerable and, and answering. And, and, again, the example of, yeah, there were times that I probably hit a bottle when I shouldn't have in terms of escapism. I, I think in terms of concrete things today, that it's a it's kind of like a three-legged stool that that I have. One is I think that as a spiritual person, and that is my um, that is my avocation. It is my uh, calling that I have to be spiritually connected, and so I have to dedicate time spiritually each day for my for my growth. Um, the second thing is my relationship with my wife is so incredibly important because we have a, just a vast amount of respect and complete honesty with the the work that we're going through. It doesn't hurt that she has, you know, she has a, a master's degree in educational psychology. So that that is a tremendous thing. And then I have a safety net of peers that uh, when I need to bounce ideas off of a trusted group, I go to them. And that's the way it is now. Uh, I've been in this game. Uh, I graduated from seminary. Uh, 30-something years ago, um, I didn't, at times, I thought that I would take on too much or I would seek uh, stress relief and alcohol or even exercising or whatever to try to avoid um, what I have found, which is a spiritual connection, 
my relationship with my significant other, my partner, and then having a safety net of peers that I can trust. So, Reverend Dave, your wife is is fully aware when you're wounded as a healer. You don't hide that from her. That's a key part of your relationship. That is that is a key part of the, of the relationship. And again, uh, I, I am. So yes, I, if, if something is going on, I will not get into specifics about the relate uh, specifics about the case because of confidentiality. But um, I will share that I am having a problem, and um, and and that is very very helpful for me. How about you, Debbie? What's your what's been your lowest point as a caregiver, and where did you go concretely for help? So, um, very much like Reverend, can I call you Reverend Dave? Is that okay? Um, very much like his, thank you. Uh, kind of like his three-legged approach, which I definitely stand on. Um, I have my wonderful spouse. Uh, he's in the medical field, so he handles that. Then I have a, a speed dial of like two or three rabbis that I love to call on the daily. Um, I am very 12-step oriented, so I have a list of people that are very vested in program that you can always talk to. And then I have uh, also my circle of friends, many of them who are also therapists that I'm able to uh, reach out and access to. And as a therapist who makes a living on communication, I, I want to communicate. I want to communicate daily. I, I don't want to hold anything in. I don't hold anything in. It's just, I don't do it. My lowest point, um, I had kind of maybe two or three lowest points and definitely needed, needed help at that point. Uh, one was when uh, my marriage of like over 20 years fell apart with um, the knowledge that my then-husband had a serious, serious addiction issue, and um, like all the songs tell you, the wife is the last to know, well, they're true, Uh, and that was an extremely low point where I definitely sought out a tremendous amount of help, um, got my way through that, and then after, um, when I remarried, during that time, unfortunately, my oldest son, my third child, passed away from brain cancer, and a year later, my granddaughter was killed in a car accident. And I have to say that at a, from a personal so sorry. standpoint, That's that was yeah. tremendous loss. So it was tremendous. It was tremendous. It was being hit by like a tsunami and a cyclone and a cement truck and, and everything all at once. And yeah, it, that was absolutely the lowest, lowest point I have ever. And you bet I sought help. I mean, that, that was just a point where it was literally, you know, do or die. Um, and now I, I have to say in the context of this conversation of the wounded healer, um, I have been looking probably for the past eight years for any kernel of blessing to come from those two events, and I have to say that, yeah, I incorporated into my work, yeah, uh, and I think I, I finally have found like, maybe a teardrop of a blessing in it. Um, right. The pain was incredible, and I, I will not sugarcoat it. I will never sugarcoat it, and, you know, and it really has helped me. I believe, grow personally and professionally. So I've squeezed out uh, what I consider to be a blessing out of an incredibly, incredibly dark time. But of course I sought help. I think it's really uh, brave of of both of you, and I applaud both of you as professional caregivers, as as a therapist in your case, Debbie, as a a minister in your case, uh, Reverend Dave, and to be open about those, you know, uh, those low points um, and really kind of eating your own cooking in terms of reaching out for help and being open. You know, I think there's been a stigma. And part of the reason I wanted to do this show is that there's been a stigma in the profession, in the caregiving professions around 
uh, not being a tabula rasa and not kind of being a total stoic in a blank slate and and um, really uh, opening up about your own your own pain and then that can actually contribute to the, the therapy and in preparing for the show thanks to you Debbie had me do some uh, reading during this uh, piece by uh, Irvin Yalom who wrote uh, a piece called The Gift of Therapy it was an, an open letter to a new generation of therapists and their patients and he described the patient and the therapist as fellow travelers both on a journey of discovery together and that's very different than the, the, the classic Freudian concept of the blank slate uh, reflective mirror of the therapist uh, who who kind of experiences nothing, <laughs> and and the and the therapist going through and the sorry the the patient going through uh, everything. Reverend Taylor, I, I want to um, talk about this wounded healer concept that Debbie just brought up. Uh, the, I mean the the most the paragon in we talked about this at the outset of the show of the wounded healer in Western culture is probably Jesus Christ. You know, who, who dies on the cross. If I understand, I'm, I'm, I'm not Christian, but I know enough about Christian theology, right? That's the concept. You correct me that it's like literally, uh, it's dying for, for others. Uh, and, and, you know, to be a little bit more, you know, uh, you know, contemporary or not to get too deep on the, the religious side for those listeners that that doesn't really resonate with. Just think about like the popular TV show, Dr. House. Where you have this literally wounded doctor, if you've seen that show, he's walking around with the, with the cane. He's in incredible emotional and physical pain all the time. He's also a, like a narcissist and, and yet he's dedicating his life to helping others. And so there's this very complex, on the one hand, this paragon of the, the, the martyr, the wounded healer, uh, uh, in the, in the, the figure of, of Jesus who is giving everything. And I think all religions to some degree have this martyr, uh, uh, paragon, and then also the the, the narcissistic, um, codependent, unhealthy wounded healer. Can you speak to that? Is that maybe that's a lot, Reverend Dave. But can, can you speak to that? I'll, I'll, I'll give my best shot, definitely. Uh, from from Jesus to house and back. So uh, <laughs> when uh, when we we look at it, you know, Jesus being the Paschal Lamb, the identification of being the Lamb that was sacrificed for the blood to be put on the door. For Passover, the the idea of the sacrifice is is something that that is huge, and and then it, even with the story of Thomas in the resurrected form, Jesus goes, "Hey, Tom, look at the nail holes. See him, buddy? You know um, that uh, there is something that is within Christianity that is Jesus was not afraid in the resurrection to um, show his scars because that helped identify who he was." It shows that he had gone through it, and 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 Debbie, you have been through so much that the wisdom, that little teardrop, what would seem like a teardrop for you through your existence, is a tsunami of grace for all of those who come in contact with you, including myself. I think that the idea that that the idea is that we we have to admit our our humanity, and I was thinking about a low time, probably the greatest hypocrisy I've ever had, um, is that I was a hospital chaplain in the VA for over a year, and the greatest hypocrisy was I'd never spent a night in a hospital as a patient. You never spent and a night? Then, Sorry, say it again. I'd never spent a night in a hospital as a patient. Right, right. And, and so I was going into people's rooms and praying for them, and I'm thinking, oh, I know what they're going through. 
And then when I was 33, I developed a tumor on my pancreas that they thought was cancerous, and I was giving a one in three chance of surviving the surgery, a one in five chance of it not being cancer, and then a one in a thousand chance of making it. My best prognosis was five years. Wow. And then all of a sudden, it became real. Right. It became real. And there was a guy who came in. He came in in a suit, and he was praying in Creole, and I was like, bring it, brother. I will take all good blessings and wishes that I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And that You were the reading minister, too. Yeah. And being willing to, to be open and to tell everybody, it's like, I'm, I am scared. I am hurting. I am in need of the grace and the love that can be found in all of humanity at this point. That's beautiful. We're going we're gonna to take a, a break. I wanted to, in the same spirit of sharing, tell you that one of the inspirations for this show, Reverend Dave and Dr. Ackerman and my side, was, and I don't think I've ever shared this on the air, obviously my closest friends and family know this, but in my 30s I also uh, battled with, with cancer, not in, by any degree with that kind of um, prospect around mortality, Reverend Dave. Uh, so I don't want to compare First of all, one should never compare tragedies, right? But I, I want to, uh, or compare misery, but I want to be clear that it, um, nothing like what you lived through. And then in my, in my 40s, as many listeners know, I've dealt with, um, a, a kind of a legal battle that is, that is, uh, consumed, you know, more than half of, of my, of this decade of my life. And in my 30s, it was doctors tending to me. And in my 40s, it was lawyers. And yes, they were both, making money as a profession just as you guys also earn money as you should from what you do but nowhere nowhere near what i think it was deserved given the in many cases uh the the amount of pain that they would take on when they would see treatments not work or see a legal filing fail and so forth and i saw this toll that that it would take not only treatment of my of me as an individual but others around me and just see the day in day out of failure the day in day out of not helping a patient, not being able to help a patient recover or, um, or, av- you know, avoid death, uh, or not help a- be able to, to help a client that you believe in and you believe in their innocence be able to avoid incarceration. And, and, and people don't talk enough about the other side. So I really appreciate you guys being open on the show and, and being able to talk about the, uh, the wounded healer and that dynamic. We're going to come back. We have some really interesting, text questions one of the most interesting ones that i think i've ever seen in the show so get ready guys we're going to take a break and we'll be back in a minute on equal footing talking about rescuing the rescuer helping those who are helping others if you should find the time to speak then speak to me i'd never keep you from your final destiny so carry Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. 
So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. Hi, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman, and I'm here with our wonderful guests, Dr. Debbie Ackerman and the Reverend Dr. David Taylor, a therapist and a member of the clergy, respectively, talking about the wounded healer, the help that often needs to be given to those that are helping others. And this doesn't only apply to those in the caregiving professions, like people, the clergy, therapists, doctors, and lawyers, but also, and nurses, etc., but also to all of us in our daily lives when we're caregiving to parents, to children, to friends, and not, and being, and making sure to take care of ourselves and recognizing that the, that we often are wounded as, as healers. Alright, thank you for the callers that are being patient on the line. We'll get to you as soon as we can. I want to, uh, read you guys a tough one. You ready for this? Alright, so here's a question. The text has come in. I want these guests to talk about the connection between empathy and psychopathy. The FBI lists the clergy, doctors, and therapists as three of the top five professions for psychopaths. Why and what is that connection? The connection between empathy and psychopathy. I don't know if this is true or not. I'm just reading a question, so I can't uh, testify to the veracity of the of the of the reference. But Dr. Ackerman, is there is is there a connection to people that go into the empathic? Professional practices also, are they like running from psychopathic tendency? Is there a connection between those two things? God, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> have you heard? First of all, have you ever heard that before? Is that, is that, is that? No. <laughs> no, it makes me, makes me for sure not want to work for the FBI. I did no, during uh, the break, by the way, just do a quick Google search, and I, I was able to find at least two of those professions in the top five in a couple different articles. I don't think this is totally which, off base. Which are the professions? Wait, what's the professions the, again? The, 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 uh, listener writes, the FBI lists the clergy, yeah. doctors, and therapists as three of the top five professions for psychopaths. And I, and I think okay. that I, I, it's obviously a very uh, a piquant question, but I think the, 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 the beginning is to talk about the connection between empathy and, and psychopathy. And I guess this resonates to some degree with the concept of codependency, too. In a way, but not. Look, to be a psychopath is obviously to be devoid of any empathy mm-hmm. or sympathy or any human feeling. And if you cannot feel for another person, you're able to hurt them in unbelievable ways, emotionally, psychologically, physically, sexually, because you, you do not feel or you cannot feel another person's pain and suffering. Um, thank God that has not been my experience. I, I have found that the majority of people that I know in the therapeutic world and know you really are very caring people who are wounded healers, who have been through things in their upbringing, in their lives, and truly, truly desire to make a difference. Uh, we, we are not of the highest paid profession. We work very long hours. We study hard. We do continuing education. So I believe what you're saying, if, if it's, you know, that the FBI has said it, but it really hasn't been my experience. Um, I don't know that I can really adequately speak to that. I'm, I'm a little, like, Wow! Shock. Um, <laughs> well, Reverend Dave, what do you what do you think about this <laughs> this, this listener's comment? 
<laughs> I, <laughs> I, I have now, I'm going to turn this over to man of God. <laughs> okay, I, I have more faith in the, uh, the therapeutic process than I do in the church uh, when I think about it. I've met some folks in seminary that fit into the classic malignant narcissist uh, category that M. Scott Peck talks about in uh, the um, the book um, uh, that, that he wrote that is escaping my mind right now. I think that there are some people that go into religious vocation because, in my experience, they didn't want the competition of law school. They didn't want the competition of business. And they knew the culture. And so, therefore, it was a place for them to potentially hide within that culture and um, they could, you know, wreak havoc. I mean, it's no secret in looking at the predatory behavior that has been well-documented, uh, tragically, within the confines of the Church, that there are individuals who are there for the wrong reasons, and they hide very well within that context. Right. Yeah, that was my initial instinct in reading that, assuming that that's, that that's a true reference that, you know, the clergy, for example, or, you know, doctors and therapists are, are top professions or psychopaths. I have no idea whether that's true. But if it, if it is true, the first thing that occurred to me is trying to, like, escape a party. I guess it's a good instinct, trying to escape a party yourself that you don't, that's, that you know is unhealthy and trying to channel it in a, in a healthy way. And I'm going to use that as an awkward segue, Dr. Ackerman, to another um, listener's uh, question here. Let me just pull it up uh, on text, which is a little a little softer, but also uh, broader. And they're talking about. Hang on, is the uh, this person says that they're not a professional caregiver. Uh, you know, that's not their profession, but I am one. I guess in their daily life, I often find, Ms. Person writes, I often find myself just wanting to fast forward, in quotes, conclusions by the people I'm trying to help and just tell them what to do. But that never seems to end well. Does that happen to you as a therapist, Dr. Ackerman? Yeah, so it's a very natural instinct when we want to be a healer to, like you say, fast forward and this is what you're going to do and, you know, listen to mommy or... Yeah, I got it, know, I heard it, do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Come on, have milk and cookies, listen to what I'm saying, you know, like Lucy, you know, that'll be five cents, please, and, and be on our way. And really... <laughs> the peanuts, I love that reference. Well, Some of our younger he, listeners might not know that reference, but yeah. Well, if you don't know it, run and read everything Charles Schultz ever ever created. Right. Lucia sets up a little like a therapy stand, like a lemonade stand. Exactly, exactly. She she's the best. Linus is actually he's he's the wounded healer. He's the best. So um, this is what we do in our training. In two years, everybody asks, "Well, what do you do?" So I will say that when I first got to social work school, I was shocked that all they wanted to talk about was me. I thought I was going to learn this these great clinical skills, and I, I really spent that first summer thinking, "What are we doing in this classroom?" They challenge us with every single thing that they can, and we know that that's not going to end well. And yeah. and like Reverend Dave said, you it's, you learn also by mistake when you try to get your client to do something. Well, they're going to get back into no, I'm not coming to treatment anymore. They, they don't. People cannot be pushed. I don't believe people can be pushed to recover from addiction. People can't be pushed to recover from borderline personality. People want autonomy. They want their choice in what they're going to do. Right. So you learn to, it, it's really the therapy term, and it really does make sense. You learn to literally trust the process. And many times I look at myself like a farmer. It's springtime now. I'm planting seeds. 
I hope they take. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm going to take this person from seedling to rooting. Maybe the next therapist will take them to Young Branch. Maybe the next therapist will take them to Wise Old Oak. You never know. And you're very tempted, but that's when you have to sit back and look at you. How about Why you? am I so tempted? Yeah, how about yeah. you, Reverend Taylor? Have you, Debbie was describing that, like, re, you know, having to resist the fast forward and give people conclusions, kind of the, is that when, when you're in a therapeutic stance or you're in a caregiving stance? Do you have the same ethical boundary, Reverend Taylor, or, or do you feel more comfortable kind of telling a parishioner, you know what, you ought to do X? Well, I, I went through, as I said before, clinical pastoral education and took counseling courses, and so, I am not an advice giver. I'm a listener, and I try to provide options and reflective listening and and to try to help the person help themselves. There are a lot of people in all realms spiritually that would just quote Scripture at somebody, which is just the easiest thing to do. It's like, well, if you're doing that, here's the Scripture that says, don't. There you have it. Pray more. And that just really doesn't... it, it religiousizes the problem, but it doesn't help the spirituality of the problem. And I, and I think that um, good pastoral counselors uh, are the tabula rasa. They are not advice givers, because the one thing that we are called to do in this profession is to give of our time. Right. It's not to find the shortest way. And that's it's to find equal way. And that's a different, that's why I wanted to separate the, this Rescuing the Rescuer series here on Equal Footing into two different episodes. One with, you know, as a, as, as a person of the clergy and as a therapist, you as guests, like, have a different relationship with the, 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 the client, so to speak, or the patient as a doctor or a lawyer would, where it is much more prescriptive. Uh, there's more of a normative relationship, and there's probably different pathologies and different woundings that take place. Caller on line one, you've been very patient. Uh, welcome to Equal Footing. Hi, good evening. Good evening. This is, this is Stan, how are you? Hi, Stan, nice to hear your voice. Okay. Uh, first of all, psychopaths, look for politics. Plenty of them, <laughs> just to let you know. <laughs> in in politics. That's true, you know that. Anyway, here, here's the thing that I think both of the, the clergy and uh, I know in the area of the military, this is a very sensitive point. Uh, when someone in the military who has been a leader or uh, over men in war, and he's seen men being killed or had to kill somebody during war and then comes back from war after and then needs, as a leader, and you know, where everyone confides to him, he needs to confide. Obviously, the army or the military has somewhat been laxed in that area, especially with officers and so forth. I'm wondering if uh, both the, the reverend and the lady have dealt in that area or had clients in the military and how did it work out? If they did, good question. I, I always appreciate this. The, getting more specific, you know, with listeners who have gone through that particular type. I know. Of I've been there. Yeah. I've been in the military, so I know. I That's appreciate you opening up about that, Doctor yeah. Ackerman. Um, it's a great question, and, and the caller is right. Uh, there is way too much uh, suicide in the military, and, and it is a known problem. I myself do not have an expertise in dealing with veterans, um, although I did give a talk to a veterans group on addiction, uh, which obviously there's huge problems with that. So it is a very well-known problem. It is one that they're addressing. Uh, Parenthetically, I can share with you, um, one of my children is a lone soldier uh, in Israel now, working very, very hard during this crisis. And she's telling me all the services that are offered to the soldiers in terms of their trauma and their anxiety and 
So it is a very huge piece of the military, and I agree with you. And, and not to get how does the reverend deal with it? How yeah, do Rev- you deal reverend with Taylor, reverend? you've you've been a chaplain in in, in with veterans, I think, yep. a lot. I was I was a chaplain in a VA hospital, and um, it's 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 fascinating and terrifying because every patient is trained to kill for the most part. And absolutely, absolutely, right. Yeah, and everyone uh, and everyone's trained to kill. And a lot of folks have addiction issues. So you're just not going to sneak up on anyone and wake them up and say, can I pray for you? Or you're going to just have a... Very interesting, yes. You know, within that, um, I've done work with Navy SEALs. I've done work with veterans. Um, There's a lot of talk of duty. There's a lot of talk of forgiveness. Mm. And if you can establish, and I think, Stan, it has been my experience, if you can establish a no BS relationship, especially with someone who's been in the military. If you can establish an authentic relationship that they know that you are there to be an advocate for them, that trust is something that cannot be broken. It's been my as, a, as a caregiver, as a someone who's ministering to their needs. Yes, and, and a good friend of mine from high school is right now a colonel in the in the army and has been a chaplain for over 20 years there are tremendous people in the armed services and every branch that are dedicated to it it's just that many times the bureaucracy stands in the way well people slip through the cracks is basically it yeah yeah i think this would be a great a broader topic for another show too stan i appreciate you always a pleasure to talk to you know that yeah thank you thanks for calling we're going to take our last break and we're going to come back talking about the wounded healer and addressing the needs of those who are trying to help others and address the needs of others kind of turning the lens around and i'm going to put to our wonderful guests dr debbie ackerman and the reverend dr dave taylor to advocate pro and con around being kind of open about being a wounded healer we'll be right back i'll stand by you i'll stand by you All right, let's talk about our last sponsor of the evening for equal footing, DocuVax. You've heard me mention this wonderful service before. It's an easy-to-use digital locker that stores all of your personal medical information on your laptop or your smartphone. It allows you to safely both store and validate that information, like vaccine records, lab results, even x-rays and MRIs. Gone are the days of losing time trying to track down your old medical records and your email or some file sharing and sharing that information with a new healthcare provider. The DocuVac system covers over 60 different important elements of your medical profile, like your basic biomarkers from COVID, flu, and tetanus vaccines to colorectal and breast cancer screenings, as well as your blood type and allergy information. So to sign up, Go to DocuVax.com, that's D-O-C-U-V-A-X.com, or you can call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. For as little as $6.99 per month, if you're a subscriber to DocuVax, you can access all of your private medical records from a secure, HIPAA-compliant, cloud-based storage facility. And as a subscriber, this is the best part, Medical professionals are on call for you 24 hours a day if you need to validate a vaccine record, 
interpret a blood test or anything else in your medical locker. And your data is never accessible unless you, as an individual subscriber, want to share it privately with a doctor or a family member. And you use a proprietary QR code-based system that DocuVax has, and it keeps your data secure at all times. So put an end to worrying if you or someone else you care about is up to date on a particular vaccine or a blood test or an important preventative screening. Take control of your medical file. Your medical records do not belong to your doctor. They don't belong to your insurance company. Company, They belong to you. So get them all stored and organized and validated on DocuVax.com. And you can also call for group discounts if you're a company that would like to sponsor this type of subscription service for your employees as an added low-cost health benefit. Call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. Operators are standing by. I've been caught Hey, back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tusman, and I'm on with the Reverend Dr. David Taylor and Dr. Debbie Ackerman, a priest. And, and is it okay, to, by the way, to call a reverend a priest? I'm sorry, Reverend David. It's okay. I'm it's okay. cool with it. All right. right. <laughs> Just, you know, I was so embarrassed. In social media uh, uh, promo for this, I misspelled the word reverend. Never going to happen again. I'm a big <laughs> to get these things correct. Put myself out there uh, with mistakes. Dr. Ackerman, who's a licensed social worker and a therapist who works on issues of addiction and trauma, marriage and family work. All right. I said we would finish the show with a quick uh, advocacy. And here's what I want to do. As we often end in the show, kind of get it, get ourselves out of our comfort zone and look at this issue of the wounded healer from two perspectives. We started the show by talking about the Freudian expectation and I would say kind of the Christian theological expectation, as is true in a lot of cultures for uh, religions for those who are ministering to prisoners of tabula rasa, this concept of being a blank slate, of not as someone who's giving care, have, you know, be open about your own problems or your own pain, your own wounds. So let's play advocacy on this. Dr. Ackerman, why don't you make, and we only have like basically a minute for each, you make the argument that healers, caregivers, whether you're a professional caregiver or that's something you're doing in your personal life, should be open about your wounds, get help, you know, embrace that you might be a wounded healer. And Reverend Taylor, take the other point of view, if you would, to wrap us up, that the stoicism, the tabula rasa of the caregiver is the right way to go. All right, Dr. Ackerman. You're up. Thank you so much for giving me that point of view. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, I'm just going to kind of say, look, if you start reading any major figure in the mental health world, biography, and that includes Freud, Young, Erickson, they all had a lot of things that they worked out. Uh, coming to more recent generations, you look at the people who started the 12-step movement, Phil and Bob, confirmed alcoholics who talked to one another, experienced strength and hope have started a movement that has positively, empirically affected millions and millions and millions of people with their philosophy. Finally, Marsha Linehan <laughs> created DCT. Again, the number one empirically-based treatment for the, one of the most difficult syndromes, which is borderline personality disorder, has completely come out, honestly, said she spent the majority of her adolescence uh, in a psych ward in a padded yeah, cell. Talking about her own post- wounds, yeah. Yeah, and Reverend today, Dave, to, since we just have a yep. minute left, give, give us the other point of view. Why, why should caregivers just stay stoic? I, I think that there is an ability to stay stoic from a religious perspective in realizing that we are instruments of grace and that we serve collectively 
um, an all-powerful God in the Abrahamic tradition. And so, therefore, it's not about our our ability, per se. It's about our availability to be there so that we can work through. And the availability is so much more important. Anyone who knows anything about Drew Bledsoe and Tom Brady knows the being able to be there is so important to be the non-anxious presence, to rely on the grace of God and not on the ability of yourself. What a wonderful note to end on. I, I think that the synthesis between being open and also staying strong and grounded is critical. Thank you both for your honesty and your openness. The Reverend Dr. David Taylor, Dr. Debbie Ackerman, thanks for being on Equal Footing. I would welcome you back another time. Thank you so much. Always an honor and a pleasure. Would love to come back. Thank you. Good night.